the National Archives podcast series, Tracing Pre-1914 Army Ancestors, presented by William Spencer. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Tracing Pre-1914 Army Ancestors, covering the period primarily 1760 to 1913, although I will creep into the First World War a little, simply because there are certain records which need to be discussed relating to the First World War and their connection with prior service. It will cover officers and other ranks. So, typical early 19th century soldier, scum of the earth, as some people describe, for example, Wellington. A very hard life. When men join the army, the earliest part of the period that I'm dis discussing, they joined for life, or until such time as they were worn out. A good example of being worn out was raised by an inquirer quite recently. Well, why was he discharged if he didn't have any teeth? Well, if you're talking about a muzzle-loaded musket like the brown vest that you see before you, the only way to open the cartridge was to bite it. And if you can't bite a cartridge, you can't load your musket. And if you can't load your musket, you're no good as an infantryman. Cavalrymen frequently falling off horses, breaking limbs, so worn out. So that would have been a good reason for discharge. So some, I'm going to mention a couple of key terms first before I actually move into the record, simply because they're things that recur quite often. And if you don't know certain bits, can be stuck. So we're going to talk about the term attestation, limited or short service, and discharge. The term attestation. Everybody comes to us looking for attestation and discharge papers. But I'll talk a little bit about the records and, and how they're arranged in due course. But of course, the, the important thing is knowing what, the, what does the term attestation mean? Well, in basic terms, it's the date upon which a recruit swears a, an oath of allegiance before a magistrate. So a soldier attests, a Royal Marine attests, but the Royal Navy rating doesn't attest because they don't swear allegiance to the Crown. And that's why Royal Navy ratings can't become yeoman warders because they are their allegiances to the Admiralty and not the Crown, interestingly. Limited or short service. This can cut out a lot of things simply because of the, the, the term. Limited or short service, a non-pensionable term, usually 12 years. Immediately prior to the First World War, it was quite possible for a man to serve for one year or four years, depending upon the terms and conditions of the engagement he, he signed. The majority of the record that I'm likely to talk about this afternoon relates to people who were discharged at least at the end of a 12-year term, in most cases longer. So, the term discharge. The release from service or release from employment. Now... Discharge can be arrived at through various means or methods. A man can be discharged to pension, so he's done probably in excess of 20 years, and that time is taken into account when the state gives him some money. A man can be discharged by purchase, i.e. he buys himself out, he's had enough. And in the 19th century, even pre-1850, something like 15 to 20 pounds was the figure used to buy a man out discharge by purchase, which then was a lot of money. A man could also be discharged dead. So termination of contract through death, either killed in action, died of wounds, died of disease, etc. 
killed in an accident, so on and so forth. But it is still a discharge. Some key terms for officers that you will need to note. Commission. Gazette date. Half pay. So, a commission. Delegated authority to exercise command. That authority is delegated from the Crown. So when an officer is commissioned, he's actually commissioned by the Sovereign. As an officer, when an officer is commissioned, he gets a warrant. So usually signed by the Sovereign. They get, they've got smaller over the years. But in the 19th century, they were actually quite big. Gazette date. A lot of our records are arranged by the Gazette date, and it's very, very important. It's the date upon which a commission is announced in the London Gazette. This is a page from an army list, which is always the source to get the Gazette date from. And you can actually see these dates are actually Gazette dates at a given rank. Very, very important for the 19th century, although this is a 20th century army list, the system is still the same source of information. Half pay. Prior to 1871, officers were given the commission primarily on account of money. So it was usually by purchase. They could get a commission on account of sorts of patronage. They could get a commission from the ranks in some cases. But it usually boiled down to money. Because when you sold your commission, you realised the capital within that commission to get a pension. Because at this time, an officer didn't have full-service pensions as, as you really understand them today. So a man who wasn't active was on half pay. Just the two more illustrations of a typical 19th century period regiment. You have the officer on the, left, uh, on the, on the right and the other rank on the left. You will see that on both their caps you've got the regimental numerical identity which at this time in, in the Crimean War period, the 95th Foot being the Derby Regiment. It was formerly the Rifle Brigade and eventually became the 2nd Battalion Derbyshire Regiment, then the 2nd Battalion Notson Derbyshire Regiment, then the 2nd Battalion Sherwood Foresters, and now it is, then it became the Worcester and Sherwood Foresters and now part of the Mercian Regiment. Lineage of the British Army for the First World War and before is very, very important when dealing with records, and I will discuss that in course. So, jumping around, key officers, records of service. WO31, WO25, WO76. There are many, many more records relating to officers, but what I'm trying to give you here is the ideal location for the maximum amount of information for the minimum amount of effort you can always keep going and keep on and on and on and look at every little bit to build up a, a full picture. But these are the important things to start off with. So, WO31, Commander-in-Chief's Memoranda, arranged by Memoranda or Gazette date. This is why it is very important when you're dealing with a 19th century officer to know when that individual was commissioned. Because the Commander-in-Chief wanted to know who he was granting commissions to. So they could look at the paperwork in the memoranda and say, oh, well, he was born here, his parents did this, he came from the background, and you get lots of little bits and 
in many cases, it's actually quite interesting, lots of name dropping. You know, he's related to so-and-so who knows so-and-so, so therefore he's a good egg, you should give him the commission. The Commander-in-Chief's memoranda are very, very important for gathering the biographical information of officers when they were initially commissioned. You don't always get it, and you don't always get it when an officer works his way up the tree, so from an ensign to a lieutenant to a captain and major and so on and so forth. So the important thing about the Commander-in-Chief's memoranda is that initial commission. Go to the army list, find an officer at the lowest rank, and then fly that date to Commander-in-Chief's memoranda. The CNC's memoranda are really effective for the period 1793 to 1870. With the abolishment of the purchase of commissions in 1871, so Commander-in-Chief's memoranda fade, but they are still very, very informative. They're very hard work to actually deal with because they come in little boxes and tightly packed letters that are usually folded into three. And I on guarantee you will get filthy when you look at them, but they are very, very rewarding. WR25, service returns and half pay registers. That in a way is being very economical with the truth because the series WO25 is actually called War Office Registers Various. But this, this particular section within WO25 is just one, one description of many within the series. The material is usually arranged by the unit. Now, by the unit, I mean the regiment. So whether it's an infantry regiment, it's foot guards, it's cavalry. We are very weak on certain regiments or corps and certain dates, simply because prior to 1921, there was no such thing as consolid record-keeping of records of service for officers. And I'll move on to that point uh, later on. In the service returns, periodically the War Office, or the Commander-in-Chief, or Horse Guards, where the Commander-in-Chief was, was based, would send out a circular letter saying, "All, please send back this form, to giving information about who you are, when you were commissioned, where you served, what appointments you undertook and so on and so forth and they're always written by the officer that they are relevant to and then they are sent back to horse guards and they are bound in regimental collections according to the return date so if they had a service return for 1828 it's an 1828 collection and there are other collections it's a one-stop shop it's very very useful because it was written in an officer's hand so in many cases you're more likely to get information from a service return than you are in many other sources. The big problem is actually accessing them because do you go to a particular, do you go to the 28 date, do you go to 27, do you go to 48? The best thing to do is to look at an officer knowing when he's serving and work for the most recent date to now and work backwards. There is a card index for the records in WO25 in the open reading room but it's, the, the quality of the handwriting is, is uh, very interesting. It's hard work, and I wish you luck if you can actually convert to reference. As long as you know the regiment that an individual officer served in at a given time, just look for the regiment in the catalogues, uh, either on, online on, on ProCat or in the paper catalogues, and look for the regiment rather than the individual. That's the easiest thing to do. But I, I challenge you to look at the uh, card index. We will be crunching it eventually and, and putting it into the catalogue. WR76, Regimental Service Records. Post-1871, 
the organisation of officers' records of service was somewhat more organised. The size of the army in the 19th century got bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, the records, of course, got greater, and the army needed to sort out their administration. So what they did was, given regional record offices around the country, so for example, Preston, Shrewsbury, Perth, regiments based around those record offices, their records were put into that place. But, as one might imagine, not everything survived. Certain regimental record offices were very good. Perth is a good example. Warwick is a good example. Others are very weak. Uh, and consequently, the important thing for you to know is the regiment, because you can just keyword search for the regiment on the catalogue. But because of the changes in 1871 and the, the changes of the regimental identities of the infantry regiments primarily that, that, that took place in 1881, you might find that a regimental officer's correct collection of records of service in WS76 might be in a pre or, or a post-1881 description. So you might want to look under the 22nd Regiment or the Cheshire Regiment. It is one and the same. So just be aware that you need to know a little bit more about the history of a regiment and its regimental identities pre and post-1881 to make the most of the records in WF76. Now, the, the great thing about the material in, in 76 is a lot of the individual volumes are name indexed. So you can try the card index in the open reading room, but what I would recommend you do is to just to find the, the relevant regimental collection and then look at the name indexes, which sometimes they are at the back of the volume, sometimes at the beginning, Sometimes the volumes are arranged in hierarchical, so the colonel first, working your way down, then in alphabetical order. It is variations on a theme. The type of information you're likely to find in the WO76 is usually pretty consistent right across the board. You will get basic biographical data, when and where born, date of the first commission, where they served, any promotion, any medals, if they were married, when, where, and to whom, if they had any children. If they died in service, you may well get that annotated on a record, simply because officers' record of service record keeping relating to those who died in service is a lot better than other ranks. And I'll come on to talking about other ranks and the problems of death in service in due course. So, other ranks, key records, there are actually, there are so, so many. What I've tried to do is just to list the tip of the iceberg, really. So, WO97, many of you may well have heard of that series. WO120, WO121. Now, WO97, Royal Hospital Chelsea Soldiers Documents, arranged by unit or function, and I'll explain that in a moment, and by discharge date. The... Series W97 covers discharges between 1760 and 1913. It is arranged in a number of different ways according to period. The records are always filed by the date that an individual was discharged from the army. So you will get a collection of papers. You will, depending upon the date, you can have a single sheet, you can have tens of sheets. But the important thing to do is to understand that you need to approach them from date of discharge first. 
So if you find somebody on the 1861 census, you know that he was discharged 61 or before. So you would not need to look at records for men discharged 1873 onwards. Depending upon date, we have indexed the period, 17, the discharges between 1760 and 1854. So you can search by name alone if you wish. But as with any military record of service, the more you know about an individual, the easier it can be to identify likely records. So if you only know that he was, his name was John Smith and he was in the army, you're going to have problems. But if you know that his was, name was Ebenezer Gibbon and he served in the 34th Foot in the Indian Mutiny and he came from Llantrisant in Wales, you're more likely to find his record, an individual's record of service as long as they were discharged. Now, the important thing about discharge is that a man has to have completed a term he has the, may need to have been invalided from the service or been discharged a pension. Widows' pensions didn't come in as a matter of right for the ordinary soldier until the, the Second World War, so 1899 to 1902. So if a man died in service, that is the termination of the contract. There is no need for the state to pay him or his next of kin any money, although widows could plead abject poverty and get money from various charitable organisations. When a man died in service pre-First World War, that was it. I'm not saying you can't get any information, but what I'm saying is you cannot get a single consolidated record of service. So if a man died in the Crimean War, 1854-55, there'll be no record of service. If he died at the Battle of Maiwand in 1880, there'll be no record of service. If he died in the Egyptian War of 1882, there'll be no record of service. But if he was invalided out, having received wounds at the Battle of Alma in 1854, he has been forced out of the army through no fault of his own, so he will get a disablement pension, so his record will survive. And, and the same if a man was discharged on account of sickness from exposure to the, the heat in Egypt in 1882, there will be a record of service. But it, you must remember that the, the big change, 1899, with those pensions, prior to that date, very, very unlikely to get a record of service for a man who died in service. Now, WO97 is arranged 1760 to 1854 by unit, but is name indexed on the computer. 1855 to 72. By, again by units and then in alphabetical order. 73 to 82, it's arranged by arm of the service, so the, the organisation, so infantry, cavalry, artillery, miscellaneous corps, and then in alphabetical order. And then between 1883 and 1913, in two batches, 1883 to 1900, 1900 to 13, it is arranged in alphabetical order only. Post-1883, you can approach looking for a soldier in WO97 purely from the name, but of course it helps if you have something else which will set one individual apart from another. The good news is we have just started digitising WO97. It's going to take three years, but eventually you will find the whole lot itemised. So instead of at the moment having to pick up a box that covers an individual name post-1883, 
or a given regiment and a given name pre-1872, three years down the line you'll be able to put in anything you know and search and find the relevant papers. Eventually it will make things a lot easier for us, or for you even. WA120 Royal Hospital Chelsea Regimental Registers of Pensioners. 120 has been name indexed. If you know an individual was a pensioner and the regiment that he was pensioned from, I would approach that series, arranged by unit or function and by discharge date. The discharge documents of pensioners are much briefer than the material in W97. In many cases, it's usually, usually a single sheet. However, you will get the beginning and end, whereas papers in W97, you can get the attestation papers, the discharge documents, the conduct sheet, hopefully blank. If it's not blank, it might be more interesting. And the medical history sheet. And the medical history sheets, in many cases, are the sorts of things that a lot of people get upset about because they didn't realise that 19th century soldiers got such nasty diseases. Other ranks, key records, two, WO10 to 15, WO96 and WO131. WO10 to 15 are the regimental muster and pay lists and it is these records which can be used to build up the profile of a man's career if they died in service or they were discharged by purchase. Hopefully anybody approaching a 19th century soldier will know that an individual served in a given unit on a given date. It doesn't necessarily matter whether they're in Ireland, Bermuda, South Africa, India, New Zealand, Japan. All you need to know is the unit and the date and then you can look at the appropriate series of musters the majority of the musters, the infantry of course, are in WO12, for the artillery in WO10 and, and so on and so forth. I've actually missed one off. WO16 is the last collection of musters and they go up to 1898. But once you get a given muster for any given quarter, it will tell you the presence of an individual in the given unit. It will tell you how much they're being paid. It will hopefully tell you where they are. If they are moving around doing various tasks in the given quarter that a muster represents, hopefully it will tell you. If a man is promoted during that time, you'll find that he goes from the privates up to the corporals, corporals to sergeants. If he is demoted, which is frequent in the 19th century, it'll have the reverse. When a man uh, jo initially joins a regiment, hopefully you'll get in the register list of recruits or additions a one line which will say, give you a physical description so they know what he's like in case he deserts, date of or year of birth, place of birth and when they attested. So you've got the beginning there. And then muster on muster you can actually start building up a man's career. So every quarter, every year that a man is in the army you can actually look at where he is, how much he's being paid, what rank he is, whether he's remitting any money to a wife back in the UK, if he's promoted, if he's demoted, and importantly, if he moves regiments. Now, records of service in W97, which I've already discussed, are between 1760 and 1872, are arranged by regiment, and then each regiment in alphabetical order. But if you find somebody, for example, on the 1861 census, and it says army pensioner, and you have something which associates him with a given regiment, 
and you go to the regimental, the, the, the description books, and then you go into the records of service in W97 for the name and the, and the regiment that you know about, and yet he's not there, what do you do? Well, the best thing to do is to go back to a period when you know he is probably in a given regiment and look at the musters and follow him through chronologically, advancing, simply because he may have transferred to another regiment and then his papers are filed by that regiment. Now, a good example of that is a lot of men seeing service out in India, in many cases for 5, 10, 15, even longer years. The regiment is due for relief. They're coming home. The man decides, well, I quite like it in India, so I'm going to transfer out of the regiment that they're currently in into the relieving regiment to stay out in India because the quality of life was better. So, of course, when the man is discharged, his papers will be in the new regiment. Now, it was not unheard of for men to transfer from one regiment to another simply to stay in a given place. He might have had a campaign wife. So rather than coming home, he stayed out with his friends in far-flung places. The musters cover 1708 to 1898. The more recent material, circa 1888 to 1898, is primarily statistical and really nearly always relates to recruits only musters are really effective between about 1790 and 1885. This is an example of a muster. This is the 16th Lancers, formerly the 16th Light Dragoons. So you get the names, present, given date range, and any annotation. So for example, killed in action at Aliwal, Matt says, believe me. Interestingly, this document is what I call, not only is it a muster, it's a working document. Now, when individuals were granted campaign medals, they had to decide or find out who was eligible by seeing who was where and when, and if they took part in a campaign. So, the greatest source for finding out who was where and when are the regimental musters. They would extract the information from the muster and then turn it into a document, which we now know are called medal rolls. This is a working document. You've got medals at the top, A for Aliwal, S for Sir Brian, and then whether a man is eligible for both clasps of the medal or nothing at all. That's the only example of a, of a working document used to create a, a medal roll that I've ever seen. This is another example of a muster, and this is quite an interesting story. This is a muster for the... 2nd Battalion East Surrey Regiment at the time. And what you'll see here are two individuals, perhaps, different numbers, different name, both embarked England insane. Now this is the story, I'll tell you the story of Michael Dowling. The first Michael Dowling, which is this one, joined the army and had a nice long service and was eventually discharged to pension in the 1880s. The second Michael Dowling joined a couple of years after and he worked in the regimental pay office and he died in, actually died in service in 1885. But these two guys' careers just followed and the impression for many years throughout the records was that one and the same man, because the one man joined and deserted and then rejoined, and the other guy was working in the pay office. So whether or not 
1678 was actually cooking the books, it was very difficult to tell. But event, you think, well, the fact that they're bracketed together, invalided to England insane, would suggest that it's actually one person. You can't have two sergeants with the same name, both being discharged to England insane on the same day. You know, was somebody being a creative accountant? But it's actually, it is two people. The second, one was discharged, 1678, died in service, and he's buried in Kingston, he died in 1885, and the other one was actually invalided from the army, insane. But why did they, you know, who put this in? It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting story, it's a problem for somebody else to resolve. <laughs> WR96, the men who didn't see full-time service in the army, the militia, their records are in WR96 and they are arranged by the units and then in alphabetical order. However, there's a little thing at the end of WO96 which I want to discuss. Right at the end of the WO96 series, there's a collection of papers for a regiment called the Royal Garrison Regiment. Now, the Royal Garrison Regiment was primarily made up of ex-regulars. When the Boer War started in 1899, a lot of ex-regulars joined things regiments called the Northern Reserve Regiment, the Southern Reserve Regiment, the Midland Reserve Regiment. Now all these reserve regiments were turned into the Royal Garrison Regiment in 1901 and their task was to relieve regular army soldiers so that they could go and fight the Boers and the Royal Garrison Regiment would go and garrison places like Malta, Gibraltar and Canada. Now if you are looking for a pre 1900 regular soldier who apparently has been discharged to pension but you can't find his records have a look in the records of the RGR because there, although the records, the description on the catalogue says 1901 to 1907, well that's correct because that's the, almost the date range that the regiment was in existence but it's full of many old and bold soldiers I actually have a name index but as they're going to digitise the material, you shouldn't have to worry. How long are we going to have to wait for the militia? I don't know. W0131, deferred pension records, 1838 to 1896. The date range of this material is, one, is once again confusing. That's the date that the pensions were being drawn or paid, 1838 to 1896. There are a significant number of men who saw service in the late 18th century who only did a limited period of service and then they got a deferred pension. I'm a deferred pensioner. I did 13 years in the Royal Navy. My pension's deferred until I'm 60. You can look through the material in W131 and you might find somebody who's done between 5 and 14 years. It's a very, very useful source. There is a name index on the additional finding age shelves in the open reading room. And what I'm going to just talk to you a little bit about now is the problem of late 19th century soldiers and the First World War. The maximum age for conscription during the First World War, so conscription between 1916 and 1918, was 56. Depending upon the circumstances of a given individual, if he was single with no dependents, a widower with no dependents, he could get conscripted. So if you think of that, 56 in 1918, there is a potential for a lot of late 19th century soldiers who have been discharged to pension 
to be called up in the First World War. If you are looking for an old and bold soldier from the late 19th century and you have not found him, consider looking in the First World War records in WO363 and WO364. There are a significant number of late 19th century pensioners in WO364. And because you can now search it by name on Ancestry, you can pick them up quite easily. 56 is just one example. That's the maximum age for conscription. There was nothing to stop a late 19th century soldier, if he was fit enough, to be taken back into the army in 1914 or 15 as a volunteer. If he was fit enough, he didn't necessarily go and see service overseas, he might have just seen service in the UK. The oldest battle casualty in the First World War was a man called Henry Webber. Henry Webber was a stockbroker who kept pestering the war office and eventually they gave him a commission. And he died on the Somme in 1916 at the age of 68. Two things to remember are remember Henry Webber as a maximum extremity of age and remember 56 as the maximum age for conscription. So whilst you are pulling your hair out trying to find a set of papers in WO 97 between 1883 and 1913, just do a calculation and and work out how old he might have been in 1916, and you will be surprised. A lot of people come up to the desk and say, I can't find his papers. And say, have you considered the first level? And the response, nine times out of ten, is he would have been too old. And when you find out that they're in their mid-40s, late-40s, early-50s, the potential is there. The material is available for you to look at. Please look at it. Thank you very much. This event was recorded live on the 3rd of June 2008 at the National Archives Q. This podcast is copyright at the National Archives. All rights reserved.